Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Extra Rounds podcast. Got it right this time. Or, as I would like to rebrand it, borrowing a phrase from our friends at Submission Radio, the Extra Rounds Lounge. This is our uh, second week in the comfy chairs and not behind the desk. And uh, it, it feels good because before we were talking, but we weren't necessarily looking at each other. Right, right. So we can better. look at each other now. Um, but thank you, everyone, for tuning in on the Sports Illustrated MMA Facebook page. We've got a lot of things to go over today. We're going to talk UFC 214 and everything that happened for about 30 minutes. And then Dean Thomas is going to call in. Of course, he's the famous uh, coach. Um, of Tyron Woodley, who fought and defended his title successfully at UFC 214, and there was a lot of drama there that we'll get into, and we'll talk to him about it. He had some um, good thoughts about it that he shared uh, today or earlier in the week, and I, I think it'd be uh, interesting to kind of explore those mm-hmm. and uh, talk to him a little bit more. So looking forward to that chat. Um, but first, let's start with the UFC 214. Everybody was it was hyped up. It was uh, expected to be one of the greatest events ever. It was a stacked card. Clearly, the best event of UFC 214 or 2017. Do you think it lived up to the hype? Yeah, I, mean, I thought it was a great card. The undercard was phenomenal uh, on paper, and they had great action. The uh, the main card was also really good uh, on paper, and I thought there was some some great uh, great fights in there. So yeah, no, I thought I thought it did. Anytime. Anytime a cyborg Justino fight goes more than a minute and a half, that means you got more action than you were expecting and more action than you bargained for. And that was, of course, thanks to a really, really tough challenger, uh, Tanya Evinger, who, who did not back away at all. Uh, so, no, yeah, I thought it was a great card. I thought it was, I thought it was phenomenal. Everyone was expecting Tanya Evinger to kind of get steamrolled in some capacity in this uh in this fight you know she was moving up in weight from 10 you know but she lasted three rounds and i think people thought if she was going to escape out of that third round we were going to see her maybe push cyborg to the limits i think that was one of the big questions uh, that went on during the fight was whether cyborg has the gas tank to go past those three rounds so she gave her a stern test it's definitely something that's uh that was interesting and fascinating to see and maybe laid the blueprint for maybe she doesn't look quite as invincible as she once did yeah i mean if you're as big as cyborg and you're as good a wrestler as Tanya Evinger, then yeah, then maybe you can you can beat her. I don't know. <laughs> no one's no one has fit that mold yet. But absolutely, you know. I mean, I, I'm assuming uh, Chris Cyborg's gas tank is good. Well, we got to ask just because she hasn't had to go five rounds, and just because we know she cut so much weight. Um, so yeah, it, it's still an open question. Um, I mean, you know, Evinger didn't mount any lasting significant offense she scored a takedown and, and Chris got up right away so you know it's still all unknown Mike but yeah I mean there's the the blueprint to survival I guess would be <laughs> be a be a, an excellent super tough uh extremely experienced veteran like Tanya Evinger and, and try to hang in there not many people are as tough as Tanya Evinger though I wouldn't stand up to those punches and I'm heavier than both of them right and for what it's worth a man but just Cyborg's punching power is just on another level, it looks like. Her striking power, too. And, and she's fluid as well. So, yeah, Avenger did not back away at all. Like, no matter how much she was hit, no matter how hard she was hit, she stayed in, in the fight, which is also something I feel Damian Maya did to the extent that he got hurt at least once, and I was surprised at that. We'll talk more about that later. But, yeah, uh, very interesting. If we ever get a wrestler in Chris Cyborg's uh, own division, um, you know, then I guess we'll see, right? Like, we'll see what her gas tank and her... And her ground game looks like now she avenger that is said she would like the rematch she feels like she could beat her this was a tmz interview i think uh and, and then most notably kat zingano and her have been going at it on social media yeah. accusations of being blocked this is a new thing in the ufc apparently about blocking people um but anyways 
that fight's out there. But I think even though the Zingano fight would be appealing from a name standpoint, I think the only fight to make for Cyborg going forward is the Megan Anderson one. Yeah. She's a featherweight, a champion. Yeah. It's the, just the one that makes sense. It's the one that we were supposed to have at UFC 214. Right, right. I think that's one. I think we should start with featherweights, right? And, and Megan Anderson is, has the size, um, has youth, and she is a title holder, um, I suppose, as well. So, yeah, I agree. That's the fight that should be made. Uh, and then there's a few other uh, featherweights. I think we should start with featherweight. Uh, other than that, uh, you know, and the fact that Ken Zingano should probably um, – get a, another win before she give, be given a title shot. Um, I like the matchup skill-wise. Kat is a really good wrestler. She's incredibly tough and durable. Um, I just, I think, and she's strong. Um, and she's not, like, tiny. Like, she's a strong person. So she probably has a better frame than Tiny Abiger for featherweight. But I still would rather see Cyborg fight featherweights. Uh, if you got to go down to bantamweight, then my first pick would be Kat Tagano. I just right. don't see. I don't see why, why, why we should. I agree. Megan Anderson would be a great fight to have uh, there. Tiny Evinger, you know, there's no reason to give her a rematch, but she's a real fighter, so she's always going to believe that she can win the next time, and and we, we got to love her for that. And uh, before wrapping up, my last thought, I guess, but moving on to the rest of the fights, it's just that they I think the UFC missed the opportunity. The flyweight division, I think, needs to happen, and it's nice to know that they want it to happen, but they should have done an Ultimate Fighter featherweight division. You already have a belt out in circulation. Build out that division. You know, that should have, they should have done that first before the flyweight division. Mm, but yeah, no, Or mean, done it in conjunction. They used to do two weight them, classes right? in one season. Yeah, right? Like, why, why, uh, why, ha- why do we have to go always choose one female division over another? You know, like, I agree. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that would have been a bad idea at all. There are um, – there's less – Elite, um, could you depth. imagine that finale? What's that? No, it'd be awesome. There's less elite depth of featherweight than like at flyweight or strawweight or atomweight. Uh, atomweight needs to happen too in the UFC if they're smart. But yeah, that would have been great. I would been great. I don't think it should crown a champion because again, I won't belabor this point any longer. But for those of you that are new, <laughs> I've said this a lot. We both have really. Cyborg Justino is not just the lineal world champion has been for arguably over t- you know ten years. So. Um, I think it could have been a great way to get a challenger for Cyborg and build up Cyborg all along as well. That would have been a really – and I guess they could still do it, Mike, right? Like better late than never. But, yeah, I agree. They should have right. a, a tough with Featherweight. That would have been great. So the main event, something that everybody tuned into, and I think that was uh, lived up to expectations. Yeah, uh, there's so much that you, we could dissect that one fight for an hour. But uh, – Let's start off with Daniel Cormier. Mm. Uh, going into this fight, there was two storylines. John Jones' redemption, Daniel Cormier cementing his legacy. Ultimately, John Jones won. So that leaves this question mark. What is Daniel Cormier's legacy now that he lost to John Jones for a second time? I think he had the opportunity, obviously, to build on his legacy if you were to beat the only man to have ever beaten him, uh, John Jones. Uh, that said... Daniel Cormier's legacy is not damaged in my eyes, and it's also a very su- substantial one. Um, I, he clearly, to me, is the second best light heavyweight in, in history, and many people consider John Jones to be the best fighter in MMA history. That's t- completely subjective. I happen to have other people higher than him, but it, whatever. It could be, right? He's awesome. He's, he, he's, he's a living legend as far as fighting goes, so I don't have any real objection. So to put that in perspective, the only person to ever beat uh, uh, Daniel Cormier over two divisions. And remember, he came down to light heavyweight after becoming the number one title contender at, at heavyweight. So he's incredibly accomplished there. Who knows if he had, it wasn't teammates and friends with Cain Velasquez 
former two-time heavyweight champion who's campaigning there uh, still for the title, if, if what Daniel could have done in heavyweight. Danny Cormier lost to perhaps the greatest fighter ever in some people's eyes, definitely the, the, the most accomplished fighter at light heavyweight ever, one of the rare two-time uh, light heavyweight champions, and just his resume is excellent. With that said, uh, I, I really want to – everyone knows that. Daniel Cormier's legacy was secure before. Like, he could have added on to it. But he, he, here's, here's what Daniel Cormier did, among other things, um, that John Jones hasn't done. He fought for a couple years that John Jones just wasn't fighting. Deserves credit for that, doing it in his late 30s, right? Those are years um, where not, it's not just the, the calendar achievement – by doing so, he had to face the likes of Alexander Gustafson and Anthony Johnson twice. He, Daniel Cormier beat Alexander Gustafson much more decisively, in my opinion, than John Jones did. Although John Jones, in many ways, was super impressive in that fight as well and coming from behind. It's not even a fight that I would have scored for him, and I did score for him in, in, under, under the current rule set. Then he beat twice Anthony Johnson, who is quite possibly the most dangerous fighter ever, uh, at at, uh, at at light heavyweight, who John Jones has never fought, or, or you know another contemporary who John Jones has never fought, to say nothing of beaten. So Daniel Cormier has done stuff that John Jones hasn't. Beating Be- Alexander Gustafson decisively, beating Anthony Johnson not once but twice, finishing him not once but twice. He's done stuff John Jones hasn't done. John Jones just happens to have the matchup edge over Daniel Cormier, which definitely counts for a lot. That puts Daniel that puts him over Daniel Cormier. But Daniel Cormier has a has one of the has one of the most accomplished records uh, in MMA history, in my view, already, given what he's done at heavyweight and at light heavyweight. He was a real champion. Um, maybe there was an argument initially when he had to fill in for John Jones against Anthony against Anthony Johnson. Um, there was an argument to say, hey, you know, Jones is still the, the rightful champion. But after two and a half years, Daniel Cormier was the real champion, not just because he held on to a belt, because of the people he beat while John Jones was gone. So I think Daniel Cormier's legacy, um, it probably stings him, but it's, just, it's most, one of the most accomplished ever in MMA. Second most accomplished at light heavyweight, uh, I think, to John Jones. I'm not forgetting guys like Randy Couture. I think Randy is right like up there at three or four with the likes of Chuck Liddell. Uh, then we bring in Tito Ortiz and... and, and um, uh, arguably, people like like uh, Rampage, Shogun, Vandalay obviously should be up there. But I think Daniel Cormier, skill wise, is is second. I think Daniel Cormier, skill wise, actually is probably the best we've ever seen. I just think he's a, John Jones is a bad matchup for him. Yeah, and he's only been beaten by one man. Yeah. And I think a lot of people going into this were feeling uh, there was a lot of talk that like Cormier might retire if he loses. You know, he, this fight could end his career. Um, and, and I, and I guess I understand that from a point of, you know, at his age, does he want to be a gatekeeper to the, you know, in the way that Joseph Benavides is, or, uh, John Dodson is to Demetrius Johnson, um, or, you know, does he keep fighting and hope somebody knocks him off? But the interesting thing here is, you know, the, I guess Kane is supposed to fight Stipe or that's the rumor, if I'm remembering correctly, that's out there, uh, for the heavyweight title. Stipe wants more money and a better contract, but yeah, that's the matchup that they're going right. for. Right. So. And, you know, if Kane wins, then it puts Cormier in a bad spot. But if he loses, then I think you have to go to Kane and be like, I'm going after this heavyweight title. Two yeah. titles? That, that's, that gives you – you'd be the fourth fighter to do it. Yeah. Um, the first is Conor McGregor. And that's an achievement that John Jones hasn't achieved right. yet. Yeah, I think that would be a great, fair plan for Daniel Cormier uh, if, if Kane can't pull it out. I'm sure he's hoping – to death that Kane wins, of sure. course. But I'm if sure. Ever to happen, yeah. I'm sure if you ask Cormier, he would say his preference would be that Kane yeah. does that. And he, fortunately for Daniel Cormier, he's 
um, leveraged his opportunity in MMA to set himself up if he does choose to walk away uh, with his Fox, you know, sports reporting yeah. gig. He does a great job. He's doing that commentary during the fights now. But I, I think people are quick to write off that his legacy is over and, right. um, you know, that he could retire. I think there's moves for him to go to still cement his legacy as one of the uh, – Best of all time. Definitely. I think he looked better than he did against John Jones. And I know that's a strange thing to say. Uh, he looked um, really good. Yeah, he looked really good. I mean, I know he got finished this fight. He didn't get finished. He definitely won the second round. Yeah, I, I, he definitely did. I, I had the first one really close and him closing it out stronger. Like, he just, he was, he's an improved fighter. If he wants to retire because he's 40, fine. But you're right. There's plenty of opportunities for him out there to build on his legacy. And certainly, he didn't look bad. He got hit with one shot. And that's the way fighting goes. That's the way sports goes. And, and it's a fair, clean, completely, uh, uh, you know, uh, unt- untainted win for John Jones. But it's not as if he got outclassed. It's not if, uh, as if he's getting outclassed by people a decade younger than him who, who may be the best ever. So, obviously, he can still fight at a high level. And John Jones deserves credit for that. I think he oh, realized yeah. there was a tendency and he was going to the oblique kicks and they went and – you went low that he Cormier, went high. Well, you're great. You know, that's exactly, I think, what you try to do. You try yeah. to get somebody to, you bait him. It's, it's a process. It was wonderful. I mean, John Jones, is he doesn't have a lot of uh, n- knockouts. He has a lot of TKOs, submissions. He doesn't have a lot of, like, one-shot knockouts to his record. So I think people forget. Uh, but he has incredible one-shot power. That's how he turned this fight around. That's how he turned Alexander Gustafs. Alexander Gustafsson was schooling him. And um, he turned that fight around with one big shot. And, and so he has, he has big power. He has really big power. He doesn't put uh, punches and strikes together in combination the way Daniel Cormier does or Alexander Gustafson or Rumble, any, the way many, many, many fighters do. But he has the ability to, make, uh, to change the tide of a fight when he needs to, when he's not dominating, and he can change the tide of a fight. He definitely deserves credit for that. One of the most impressive things, I think, before we move on to the next topic is the the fact that as Cormier was trying to gain his balance and was backing away, as Jones was coming forward, he tripped him with his foot. You know, to be able to stick your foot, it's kind of like a soccer thing. That's always yeah. impressed me about soccer players. They're able to do things with their feet while also running full speed. It's like that same kind of thing. Like, he stuck his foot out, hooked it around his ankle, and pulled on it yeah. as he's stepping forward, chasing this guy in hot pursuit right before he throws a flying knee. That's a profound, but even though it's subtle, like ag- uh, agility maneuver, right? Like, yeah, that was right. very impressive, yeah. I- I've thought about trying to do it in the office just to see if I could without falling and I, but I've saved, uh, <laughs> saved myself. So the, you know, the big next talking point about this main event was the interview with Joe Rogan afterwards, Joe Rogan yeah. after UFC 203, when he interviewed Alistair Overeem kind of spoke out against interviewing fighters who had been concussed. And in that instance, Alistair Overeem was saying that he thought that Stipe tapped out and was questioning the uh, referee when at Jones played the, or not Jones, Rogan played the replay and showed that there wasn't any tab out. It was kind of an embarrassing moment, I think, yeah. for all people around. But anyways, Daniel Cormier, slow to get up and obviously trying to get his wits about him. And jo- uh, Rogan goes in to interview him, prefaces it with saying that he doesn't believe fighters who have just been concussed should be interviewed, but does it anyways. And I understand his reasoning was to give him a chance to uh, speak his mind. But, but what were your thoughts on all this? Yeah, I think, well, first part, is Joe, uh, is Joe Rogan deserves credit for caring because it's for being conflicted because this is not something that I mean something I've thought a lot about maybe you have as well uh, but it's not something that's been an issue it's not been in the discursive very much until he started talking about it this has always been done in, in MMA it's still done in boxing it's done uh, without remorse with a lot of callousness by the likes of uh, Larry Merchant or uh, all these other 
all these other uh, talkers uh, in high-level boxing. Uh, and, and he, he did apologize. What's that again? And, he, and Rogan yeah. did. Yeah, he did. So he apologized. Like, he deserves credit for caring about it, for th- being conflicted, and for apologizing. Um, but, yeah, I do think it's the wrong thing to do. Uh, I don't. Joe is saying it was all his doing. I mean, the reality is he has people in his ear. I'd be very surprised if they didn't say go in there and talk to him with the producers in the truck. I, I think he's just taking it all on his own And shoulders. I'm sure at some point it's muscle memory for him. Like, this right. is what he does. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, it. I interview this guy and then I interview this guy. Yeah. And, and you Rap know, in, in one sense, you want to give it both, especially in this case, you want to give both guys a chance to talk. It's a, you're trying to do, you know, give uh, Cormier, uh, you know, a platform. It just so happens that, yeah, this is a bad idea. Not only do I think immediate in-ring interviews are, are especially dangerous idea, I think even post-fight press conferences are bad. Dana, uh, Ronda Rousey got really um, uh, a lot of flack on, on by, 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 by some people, some journalists, some people that I've just posters anonymously on, on forums I've noticed for like skipping out in post-fight interviews after she was knocked out and not doing post-fight press conferences. That's the right thing to do. Uh, immediately, these, these folks need to be evaluated at least by the ringside physician or paramedic. Uh, they definitely need to get medical attention. Uh, listen, they don't have pensions. They don't have year-round health care. They don't have uh, uh, brain imaging necessarily done between uh, uh, before most fights. There's no real care for fighters and their brain health. The least we can do is say this person was battered around. Let's just get them to the doctor to do the very bare minimum to flash the light in their eye and send them on their way. It's a very bare minimum that can be done. And I think there's actually a real... Um, unspoken of unthought of liability uh, with the UFC and everyone involved to to keep fighters in the cage. For It looked, it's hard to tell, it's hard to know exactly, even he may not know because he was just woke up, what Daniel Cormier was doing, but it looked like he was trying to get out of the cage. Dana White looked like he was trying to keep him in the cage. I think that's a problem. You let him go out and the doctor's going to see him. This guy got, Is not only was some... he knocked out, he was, he was hit like five consecutive times after he was knocked out. Uh, before John McCarthy's, you know, uh, let it go, uh, or stopped it, I should say. But is there some concern when somebody who's just been concussed is marching towards the stairs? Like, whoa. Like, you know what I mean? Like, if you had a friend who had drank too much and sure. he was marching towards the stairs, you wouldn't let him just, like, take off No, the that's stairs. a great point. Now, if Dana White would have called in a doctor, had him sit there, then not pushed him to go talk on television, I think it would be reason to believe that was his concern. But that, yeah, no, no. I, otherwise, yeah, I think that's right. Maybe sit him down, bring the doctors to him. Got no problem with that. It's the last fight of the night. Um, yeah, that's a good point. But they didn't do that. And they Cormier can't. didn't do the press conference afterwards, yeah. like you were saying that, that he shouldn't. He actually went to the hospital for good. to get treated for concussion. Um, at good. least according to what people who were reporters who were there were saying. Mm. Um, the the other thing about this though is like some people, the Alistair Overeem incident, I think, was so much more cut and dry because mm. you could see him saying like I thought this happened and you know the replay clearly showing that didn't happen and it created this like obvious issue whereas I think Cormier for everything he had just been through seconds earlier was rather composed yeah it's amazing right and we usually um, see that yeah. poignant you know right. I think his statement about the legacy was you know not what you would expect for somebody who had just been battered yeah, yeah. I mean, I would have been more surprised. I think you're right. I would have been more surprised if you would have been able to break down the end of the fight. I think it's just, for, you know, he, could, he was probably told he lost. And then he's thinking about the fact that he lost. And he's, that's why he's crying. And he's like, well, fuck it. I guess there's no rivalry, right? So it's like, like make no, that was, it is amazing. And I'm always amazed. Even when they're not hurt, Mike, I'm amazed at when an exhausted fighter can put together really good senses after. It always impresses me. But it would have been, you know, let's, let's not make a mistake. He didn't, like, his brain wasn't okay. He didn't, like, 
say a bunch of uh, he didn't analyze his own fight or anything like that. He was talking about overall stuff. But yeah, I don't know how they I don't know how, how fighters do that. I don't know how Clay Guida can talk for five minutes after fighting for twenty five minutes and like do push ups and not like what? How did you remember all that? So right. oh, that is amazing. And uh, you know we got a few more minutes before Dean Thomas, coach for Tyron Willie, comes in to talk about the other big talking point out of the night. Yeah. Um, but before we do that, to wrap up John Jones uh, on the show, um, the call out of Brock Lesnar. Yeah. It became a talking point all week, kind of seemingly out of nowhere. And he, I guess he ta- he said in the post fight press conference that he talked to his team and he uh, th- he decided this is the fight that he wanted and the fight that he thought he could win. And obviously, this would be a fight that he should want. It's yeah. going to pay him very well. But what did you make of this? Do you think it could happen? There's reports that say it could happen next summer. Um, there's obviously all these hurdles to overcome. What, what do you think? Yeah, I think it could happen. I think the reason we're talking about it is it can't be an accident. When Dave Meltzer um, came out and reported it, he's as good. We talked about this last week when you brought it up. He's as good of a source as there is for the business of MMA and especially intersection of pro wrestling business and MMA business. So I'm assuming his sources were good. Um, the fact that John Jones was talking about it shows that, you know, there's something to it. Um, the fact that Dana White denied it means nothing. Dana White, like the two days before they announced Brock Lesnar was fighting a UFC 200 denied it all. Like he's just going to lie about it. And, you know, like he did um, uh, several other issues related to Tyrone Woodley, which I want to talk about later, um, and, and you know, a number of other things. So uh, that combined with the fact that Brock Lesnar, one of the most elusive figures in entertainment, in MMA, and sports entertainment, how many quotes did we get from him last week? At least two. Like minutes after. He, he had an AP reporter on the line a minute after John Jones had uh, called him out. This is intentional. This is planned. This is being worked on. And I think there are no real hurdles. Everyone keeps talking about USADA suspensions. USADA is not, contrary to their claims, they're not an independent regulator. They work for their, their, their contractors, and in this case, it's the UFC. USADA had guidelines and rules about testing pools prior to Brock Lesnar's last fight. The UFC said, let's ignore that. They said, okay, because they're the boss. The UFC is the boss of USADA. Brock Lesnar can fight whenever the UFC and the WWE work out a deal. And Meltzer says next summer, which that timeline from a logical standpoint makes sense because three years ago, well, three years ago from this upcoming spring uh, in 2015 is when he signed his three-year deal with the US, or WWE uh, when he was entertaining a comeback. So his contract's up uh, after WrestleMania next year, which is just, you know, eight months away maybe. If I can do quick math, maybe a little bit, 10 months, I don't know. We could talk about something um, for a year and build it up, right? Right. We will now. <laughs> so, you know, that's another one of those hurdles that you think that people allude to that is maybe not so much of a hurdle that's because it's expiring. So I didn't know that. Yeah. You know, so there's a, there's a clear road there. And the other thing is Dana White's always bragged about being the guy who puts on the fights that people want to see. And that's why the UFC's gained a leg up on boxing is because he puts on those fights that the fight fans clamor from. He, he said it a million times in this Mayweather-McGregor buildup. Right. Um, which, by the way, we'll go on a quick little tangent yeah. before we get Dean Thomas on the line in a couple minutes. Uh, did you notice him wearing the Mayweather-McGregor shirt during the UFC 214 weigh-ins? A mm. lot of people were talking about this on social media. A lot of people thought it was like incredibly disrespectful. I didn't think it was a big deal. What are your thoughts? I didn't see that. Well, I think... Um, so it's like the Fox broadcast <laughs> with the stare-downs and he's standing there with a the shirt. I mean, the UFC clearly has a financial interest in this fight somehow, uh, which they're, they're being vague about, and that's clearly illegal which is 
one of the, the, the main issues I have with this fight. I don't even need to get into the fact that it's, you know, a sham for boxing and that if someone were to make, break Marciano's record against someone who's never boxed before, that's all that purist argument, which are true, aside, um, I think the whole fight is illegal. It's going to set MMA back. It's going to set fighters back, and, and it's, and it's uh, illegitimate. So him wearing the shirt is like a feather on top of all that to me. My thought process was like, people like, why aren't you promoting UFC 214? And it's like, if you're watching the UFC 214 weigh-ins, you're watching watching the fights. Yeah, right. So like, why any promotion, like the whole thing is promotion. It's a promotion for a different fight built into a promotion for a fight. Yeah, I don't get the outrage at this point. Right. It's like, like, if you're, listen, it's seven o'clock in the evening (laughs) on a Friday and you're at home watching Fox Sports to see some guys do a fake weigh in. Like, you're you're probably watching the paper. You're You're sold. sold. And he's going to use that opportunity to promote this other event coming up this month that he's going to make money from, which, again, I think you could have an issue on that legally, ethically, all sorts of issues with that. The t shirt isn't the issue, guys. That's not the Twitter spheres. Concerns though. <laughs> no, no. I guess it's hard. It's hard to do investigative uh, reporting in 120 characters or 140 characters, whatever it is. I suppose. Right. <laughs> but anyways, that was that was a huge talking point. Yeah, so. that's interesting. I didn't realize there was that outrage about it. You're much more plugged into to the kids on the Twitter. I I, I do love the internet. <laughs> yeah, it's getting a hard time from my my wife because I was telling her she needs to be on the internet more often because she doesn't get some of the jokes I make. Because <laughs> they're very topical. I'm a very topical person. I also, while you're getting them on the line, uh-huh. I think I'm going to start a Twitter account for her because <laughs> she has fire MMA takes. <laughs> and anytime I share them on my social media account, they get a good response. So I think it'd be really interesting to see. Would she be mad at you for doing that if she discovered it like four years later that you had all this gold out there? I mean, I told her. I told her, I was like, I'm going to do this. The best was like after Robert Whitaker, Derek Brunson's fight, which was a sloppy fight, if you remember. And uh, Whitaker, of course, won and is celebrating. She's just berating him through the TV. And it's like, this is just, I should be tweeting everything you're saying. (laughs) I've asked her if she'd let me live stream her watch fights, and she, she won't. But maybe one day without, I'll just like periscope it. That sounds phenomenal. It sounds, uh, it sounds you know, no less professional than most professional so-called media members out there tweeting about fighters. Right. I think we should do it. I'd watch it. All right, I'm going to – should I give him a call? Give him a call. Let's, Let's get him if, on the line. If Coach Dean Thomas is, is, uh, is available. We're getting a producer soon, and it'll lose the allure of these mm-hmm. phone calls. Hello. Coach Dean, this is Elias. I'm here with my co-host Mike. Thanks for being on. Hey, man, what's happening? Not too much, man. A lot more happening with you than us. That's why we're excited to talk to you, Coach. I know, man. I wish it wasn't, but you know what? I'm always in the center of controversy. <laughs> you are. You're just, you're just a lightning rod, man. It's all your fault. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It seems like that sometimes. Like, why am I always messing up so bad that? Uh, and it affects other people. That's what I feel like. <laughs> I Such actually, a bad luck charm. <laughs> well, you're, you're a great luck charm as a, as a coach. Probably has nothing to do with luck at all. And I actually do want to talk to you about um, the, the fight itself before we get into you being in the middle of stuff. That is something very specific I want to ask you about. Um, <laughs> but because uh, you're actually in a very particular way, seemingly in the middle of, of, some, of Tyrone Woodley and Dana White uh, going after each other. And that's got to be a rough situation. But first, I want to talk about the fight. Um, I, it's a fat, congratulations, number one, on your guy, Tyron Thank Woodley, you. retaining the title. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk about the risk 
that is the unique risk that is fighting Damian Maya. As a quick review, uh, Damian Maya was not just you know the number one contender, having won I believe seven straight fights. He's taken down every so-called superior wrestler he's ever faced in his MMA career. He took about five seconds to toss international wrestler Chael Sonnen on his head. He's taken down John Fitch. He's taken down Jake Shields. He's taken down everyone. He's a great takedown uh, threat. And he's also, you know, obviously uh, pretty dominant on the ground. He's done things like even when he doesn't get the takedown, pulling half guard, which is like suicidal in a a grappling match most times, to say nothing of a fight where you can be hit. And he's been successful there. What, you know, just so people understand a little bit, whatever your, your guys' strategy and game plan w- was, talk a little bit about the, the threat Damian Maya poses, not just with his takedowns, Coach, but also with failed takedowns where, he, where an opponent sprawls, stays on tops of, top of him, and then Maya's able to, to get an underhook and pull that half guard. Yeah, Damian Maya has the unique ability to uh, utilize a lot of jiu-jitsu in, in his approach to taking people down. And that's more so... And that's you know very, he's very good at that. I mean, he's the one who who keeps who has faith in faith in his jujitsu, and as long as he's got a finger on you, hmm. he can manipulate you and off balance you using like his jujitsu skills in order to transition back into wrestling. So I mean, he's just he's really 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 good at that, and that was something that we had to prepare for very specifically, and we brought in guys who were good at specific areas and we were able to be able to kind of, uh, you know, re-engineer, reverse engineer rather, uh, his approach in order to stop it, you know, between using, uh, you know, Ben Askren and, and my buddy, uh, Antonio Carlos Jr. with his jiu-jitsu ability and Ben Askren's wrestling ability, you know, we were able to kind of reverse engineer Damian Maia's approach and just shut down his whole game. What was the was the overall plan, Coach, to to approach this? Even though uh, T. Wood came up uh, as a wrestler, as a high level grappler, was it to basically be the striker, keep things on the feet, wrestle in reverse, and then obviously uh, connect more than your opponent on the feet? But was it basically that, like let's let's keep this let's keep this standing? Yeah, you know the weird thing about like the camp was that you know obviously we wanted to keep it standing, but we but you know with a five week camp we had to really yeah. focus a lot on you know not getting taken down and end up in bad positions and uh, being able to deal with uh, if if you do get taken down and I, and then also you know dealing with Damian Maya off of his back. So we spent probably a majority of our camp dealing with dealing with issues that never played out in the fight mm. so yeah honestly we did you know we, we 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 never really got a chance to show what tyron was capable of in those areas so it really came down so we didn't really even work on i mean we obviously we worked on a lot of striking but i mean we weren't dealing with a kickboxer mm. so we didn't have to like come up with a lot of strategies on dealing with certain strikes you know that just came with the territory but we spent a majority of our camp working on situations that actually never happened in the fight Speaking of striking, were you surprised at all that, or maybe I'm just I saw things, but were you surprised with Damian Maya's willingness to to stand and 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 in certain pot, certain moments trade a little bit, like against his in his last fight against Jorge Masvidal, another ATT guy, he looked pretty out of his element and pretty like he looked he looked really really uh, nervous standing a lot and more so I guess than. I thought that in this last time he fought T. Wood, and he actually landed some good punches because of it. Would that surprise you at all? No, it didn't, actually, because I felt as though, with anybody, when you can't take a guy down, you have to utilize other resources. And I felt as though that he 
he's not totally clueless on his feet. Mm. And we saw that in the Chris Weidman fight. In fact, I thought he outstruck Chris Weidman. So, you know, that was something that we were care- careful of to go, all right, you know, he's a, a great jiu-jitsu guy, but and ignore the fact that he does have two arms and two fists, and he will try to punch you, and he will try <laughs> to kick you if he has to. So, you know, we, we did, you know, work on that as far as a part of our game plan. Uh, so, I mean, again, it was just um, a very difficult fight to prepare for when you're dealing with a guy who's so strong and so sophisticated in his approach to what he does. You know, it wasn't an easy camp, especially being a short one. We had to really buckle down and dig deep and spend countless hours. And I know, and for me, it wasn't nothing because I'm sitting there watching. But like for Tyron, I know it had to be just miserable and frustrating to have to deal with, you know, having guys like, you know, Juan Carnero, Jukau hanging on his back for round after round and dealing with things like that. And how much, you know, this is his fourth, it was his fourth fight in under a calendar year, fourth title fight at that matter. How much of, you know, you talk about the grind and just, preparing for Maya, but the grind of all these camps back to back to back. You know, part of it, you know, again, selfishly, I can say I don't mind it because <laughs> I like, I, you know, honestly, like I like going up to like we, we did most of the camp down here in Florida, but for the other camps, we spent a lot of time in Milwaukee with Duke Rufus. And uh, so I like going to, I like going away to camp. I can't, you know, I'm selfish in that fact that I like going away to camp. I like hanging out with Tyron. I like getting the crew together. We get a crew and we bring everybody out. We have a good time. Um, so those are, those are okay. It's, it's not that bad for me, but for Tyron, I'm, I'm sure it's, it's just miserable. I mean, you're constantly under pressure, you know, to fight and you're trying to defend your belt and, you know, you know that you, there's a target on you and you know, interviews and media. So it's hard on him, and, and I think he kind of deserves a little bit of a break now. It, a lot was made of, of uh, Tyron's takedown defense uh, percentage going into this fight. Like that, <laughs> Ironically, that was touted by the UFC heading into it. Afterwards, not so much, right? But, you know, not many people have actually shot on, Ty, uh, on Tyron before. This time, he may have set a record for most successful takedown defenses in a fight ever, uh, any of any organization, um, that's w- w- when we when we really, if we're honest, that's a real form in MMA because this is not boxing, it's not kickboxing. That's a real defensive mastery. A- has that been overlooked in your in your mind the last couple of days since the fight with all Absolutely. this criticism? Absolutely, it's been overlooked. I mean, it's I'm almost not sure why this witch hunt has begun on him. I don't know what it is, you know, why they, you know, why the fans and, you know, the haters want to, you know, attack him. I mean, when I look at his performance, regardless of what people thought of it, they go, it's boring. You know, he's a boring champion. But when I look at his performance, I thought it was masterful. And I think it's something that we should appreciate if we're if we really want to look at MMA as a legitimate sport. We should appreciate what he did and go, all right, he may not be, you know, this crazy, wild, reckless Justin Gaethje type fighter, but he's a smart, intelligent champion. He He's able to adapt to different fighters and do what he has to do to win. And and he did. And he did it against two guys, not only this fight, but even against Wonderboy. Mm-hmm. Wonderboy was a guy who went in and was knocking people out, you know, using this different style. Tyron was able to, we were able to make the adjustments and win that fight. Then he comes back and fights a completely different opponent, completely different. He's able to make the adjustments and also win the fight. You know, I see the the fight the same way you do. I appreciate the thought that went in. Like he obviously recognized what Maya's good at and found a way to to neutralize it, and he executed flawlessly. Uh, you know, but he's getting kind of 
I don't want to say beat up, but he has naysayers that are being particularly vocal on social media and whatnot. Have you, how is he handling all this right now? You know, if it was a year ago, I think he would have been bothered by it. But nowadays, he's it's something I think maybe after the, the Robbie Lawler fight that, you know, and this is something that we talked about, like, because I've been with him for a long time. And I remember he used to be bothered by the social media stuff. And I used to try to I used to steal his phone so he couldn't go on it. <laughs> but I think nowadays, I think he's OK with it. I think he's learned to embrace you know, the haters and just go, you know what? It doesn't, it doesn't matter. I, I can't prove nothing to you guys. I, all I can do is make my money and provide for my family. And I think that's more so what he's concerned with now is just, you know, making his money, trying to create a legacy, provide for his family. And he's not so concerned with what people are saying, especially after this fight too, because we were both pretty proud of his performance. As long as they're talking about you. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's, that's a good thing, really. I mean, they're talk- they might hate him, but it's a good thing that they're talking. I mean, it could be worse if he was a champion. And I was like, who is that again? I don't know who that is. So so fans hating on a fighter are one thing. Your boss hating on you, your promoter doing the opposite of promoting you, the person who has some impact on how much you get paid, when you get paid, what you get paid, uh, it, to do things like provide for your family. Clearly that's another thing, right? Uh, and, and that's a tough thing. Tyron talked a little bit uh, on uh, Ariel's show earlier this week and demanding an apology. I've seen some response from you already about that, Coach. I want to ask you this. You, you know, you, 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 you're obviously Tyron's longtime coach, one of his coaches, and you're also um, close enough with Dana White to, to do the, you know, the, looking, the looking for a fighter, uh, looking for a fight show that you do with him. We've had you on here before. You've talked about having a good time with, you know, with that and with him. It's a tough spot for you. How, how sad and angry might it make you feel to hear Dana White continually bash and even lie about Tyron Woodley? And I, when I say lie, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic. In the press conference, Dana White afterwards, up to 214, came out and gave just false stats. Like his friend Donald Trump came out and gave false stats. said, this is the fewest strikes ever thrown in a, in a title fight. That's wrong. That's not, that's not correct. That's verifiable. George St. Pierre, Dan Hardy, threw less in that one. Uh, Matt Hughes, Sean Shirk, less, less one than that. What do all these fights have in common? Also all-time greats at welterweight. That's just the welterweight division. So he's coming out and saying just false things about him. That's, that's on top of things like after uh, he, uh, Tyro, Tyron's fight, the first fight with, with Wonder Boy, one of the most thrilling fights we've had in recent MMA history, Dana White bashes T. Wood and said, go out and win a fight. Don't get a draw. He bashes an amazing performance there. He told Tyron to sh- quote, shut up and fight when Tyron talked about racism, when he talked about fighter treatment. Uh, you know, and now he's, he's lying and bashing him again. Um, you know, how does that, how do you process that? How, how, how are you dealing with that? Well, one, I have to separate my relationship with Dana as far as, um, you know, his him being the boss and then him being my friend. You know, I have to separate that. So, and I understand, like as a boss and as and I, I respect his position clearly. I do, and he has he has a duty to the fans. You know, and I sometimes I don't even know if Dana really fully believes. You know what he's saying. Sometimes I don't know, <laughs> but but I do. But I do understand he has a he has a, a responsibility to the fans to provide a show for them. And if they don't like it, you know, he has to answer to them. You know what I'm saying? So I understand that and I get where he's coming from. And and at some level too, Dana's still a fan too. Like Dana is he's still a fan. You know, and I think he's more fan than he is as far as like being an expert 
on the sport itself. I think he's more fan. So, you know, he, so in that sense, I do believe he might believe some of it and may actually think that Tyron is a boring champion. But for me, I have to separate that mm. and not look at it like, oh man, this is, you know, this is bad. I just go, hey, listen, I understand you got a responsibility to the fans. Do what you got to do, say what you got to say. But at the same time, like, I have my duties too as a coach and as a friend of Tyron Woodley and go, you know what, we, I have to make sure you're winning this belt because I promise you this if Tyron loses that belt, mm. He's going to the back of the line. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. So we got to we got to keep it by all, any means necessary. But I also think this, too, is that there's some unrealistic expectation of Tyron based on his history, hmm. based on the fact that he knocked out Jay Haran with the quickness, knocked out Robbie Lawler with the quickness, Josh Kostek with the quickness. The, uh, now people look, see that and go, man, this guy is a beast. He should just walk across the ring and just punch a guy and they're going to fall out of the, You know, they're hmm. going to fall into the third row. That's an unrealistic expectation. So now when you see a guy with that type of physical capability fighting these smart fights, they almost get upset with them. They're almost like, man, what are you doing? Why are you fighting like that? We know you're capable of more. But at the end of the day, you know, these opponents, they're ready for what they're ready for Tyron's right hand. They're ready for what, what he brings to the table. So he has to bring something else to the table. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I, that, I hadn't thought about that at all, about him, you know, being these, these unrealistic expectations. It does kind of cue in to what I was going to ask because, you know, you're, you're talking about coaching. You know, maybe Dana White's just more fan than anything. You know, I, and, that, and, it, and you know, it definitely could be. I personally, and this is speaking only for myself, you've got no one has to agree with me here at all. Uh, certainly not the two of you here now with me. but We'll see. I, but I find it. I, I don't think it's just about being a fan. I think Dana White, you can draw the criticisms of Tyrone Woodley starting directly when Tyrone Woodley starts talking about his pay. Directly when Tyrone Woodley starts talking about race in America, race uh, in the sport, and that's when the criticism starts. You have to be—you have to have an agenda or be an idiot to criticize Woodley Thompson. One, even if all you care about is blood and guts in a fight, and that's exactly what Dana White did. Uh, he criticized Tyrone Woodley's performance in that fight. That's absurd. So I think a lot of it has to do with other stuff. And, and what I'm curious here, uh, and you can comment on that if you want, but you don't have to. But I'm curious as well like you know you talk about people expect being okay with t wood being a beast going there knocking people out with a quickness but now they're not okay with him being a, a cerebral tactical fighter when he needs to and i can't help maybe it's maybe i'm way off base here as a person of color but i can't help thinking wow isn't that interesting how we're okay with this black he-man being a beast but we're not okay with him being a cerebral tactical fighter the type of attributes which often get praised in sports but they're not being they're not being he's not being praised for him when it's tyron woodley yeah i mean that's very that is absolutely true and you know we you will catch heat for that we'll catch heat for saying that oh you're bringing race into this you're bringing but i mean it is true it's a perception that may be subconscious to some people but it is true i mean you know when he's going out there and he's fighting these you know tactical fights and you're looking at him and you see this this he-man of a of an african-american athlete and he's just fighting a tactical fight you're like what is he doing like it's not it's not common for us to see that and it's true and i, I fully believe that with my heart did like it that has something to do with it now I, again you know whenever you bring up race in this country you know people always assume that you're saying that you know it's going to be this race war this riot but we have to call it like it is we have these perceptions of each other that, and these prejudices of, of each other that, that just we're just kind of uh, conditioned to we're very conditioned to believe certain things about when we see what we see from people and that's one of them you know like when we see you know black athletes that's why i used to see it all the time and i remember when i was fighting every time they would come up with my things 
explosive, <laughs> great athlete. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was never really super smart. Right. I mean, that's just the way it was, and it's just the way it always been, and it still is that way. Do, do these guys, did Dana ever talk to you about T-Wood? Does T-Wood ever talk to you about Dana? No, not really. Not really. I mean, we've, I, again, I try to keep that separate sure. because they're always, you know, those two, they're like, you know, like cats and, and dogs, man. And, and But Tyron has that relationship with a lot of guys, actually. <laughs> but And I try to keep it separate because I can't, I don't want to get in the middle of that. But they, they're kind of always going at it. And sometimes they're good, sometimes they're not. And when they're good, they're really good. And when they're not, I'm like, I don't even want to bring this guy into this. But, but at the end of the day, like, D- Dana really likes Tyron. I know he does. He really likes him. And I know he really appreciates what Tyron does because Tyron does do a lot for the sport. I mean, he's very outspoken. He's not afraid to get in front of the camera and promote himself or the or the show. He just, um, you know, he just wants what he wants. And, I, and, 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 and the point you made up a little earlier, I believe that to be true, too, is that, you know, if there is any uh, blame on him, it is, you know, he can make these claims sometimes and say he's the greatest in the world and that this, that, and the third. And people really want to see him prove it and go out there and be a, you know this crazy savage but um again it's an unrealistic expectation he's also said those things uh, and maybe done more to prove them than somebody else who's extremely popular for saying some the exact same things <laughs> right right um Talk about which is mcgregor <laughs> yeah which isn't necessarily fair fair to tyron but right. and, and it's weird to hear you know to hear that like he can be cats and dogs with somebody having seen Woodley like with his Rufus sport teammates, he's so beloved by his teammates. Like every, like people in the gym really rally around him. Yeah. It's his, it's his personality though. You know, he's a, he's got a very, and he'll be the first to tell you he's, he could be stubborn at times and you know, he wants what he wants and when he wants it. And, but when you that. get with somebody, yeah. And when you get with somebody else who wants what they want, when they want it again, Dana White, you know, in some of these and some other, you know, very powerful figures in the game, when they get together and they both want the same thing, it's always a clash. But, you know, but they're professionals about it. They'll argue and they'll go back, go at it back and forth. But at the end of the day, it's all love because at the end of the day, everybody wants the same thing and that's to succeed and make money. And, and I wanted to um, talk more about the, the smart and the technician and the, the game plan. I think being able to game plan really well isn't necessarily something that's praised in MMA in general. Um, I don't think people think people are just going to go in and do what they do. They don't necessarily think that people are going to alter their approach for specific opponents. You know, in, in other sports, like in football, you could, and I use this analogy on social media while defending Tyron Woodley this week, if it was a 6-3 college football game in the SEC between like Alabama and LSU, people would think it was an all-time classic, a defensive sh- struggle, you know, this great game. It could have been boring. There, there are no touchdowns, only field goals, but people would love it. And, and I think there's like this understanding because you grew up, you played it when you were young, your dad watched it, there's a greater understanding and appreciation you know of the game. You know it's hard to do. Right, so is this the thing, like MMA is just so young that the, there's fans who are continuously getting into it every year for the first time and they just don't know to what they're witnessing or how to appreciate it? Well, here's, here's what we have to understand. You know, and this is one thing we all have to understand is that MMA is not boring. It's not boring. It's just, like you said, it's what people understand. Now, people can watch a football game and be entertained by it, even if it's, you know, 6-3. People can watch golf (laughs) and be entertained by that. Do you know why? Because they can go out there and do it. Yeah. Because they can go out there and do it. But how many people will actually get into a fight? Mm. Not many. You know what I'm saying? And if they do Mm. get into a fight, it's a street fight. So, like, that's what they understand. They understand a street fight. And if they won't get into a street fight, 
they still only understand that street fight that street fighting barbaric mentality that they're living vicariously through the fighters so like they don't want to see a fighter being able to think think things through or have a game plan and a strategy they just want to see guys just go at it and go crazy because that's what they understand like the last time they got into a fight was some somebody stole their parking spot so they went out and just grabbed them by their shirt and punched them in the head but that's not that doesn't happen in mma you know what i'm saying it can't happen in mma so like that's where the disconnect is between fans and where real fighters want the sport to go I guess when you uh, when the guy steals your parking spot, you're not going out there thinking I'm going to be a smart fighter against this guy as I right, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. express my rage. Yeah, and they're not, yeah, tra- exactly. they're not they're not a trained dude. You don't need to be super smart, right? Right. <laughs> so no, absolutely. You know, uh, b- before we let you go, coach. You know, we you, we're talking about just, uh, about current events, stuff that just happened, really important stuff, and and we really appreciate your your honesty and, and candor with all of that. But you you do so much. What's next for you? Where can fans follow you? Um, you know, anything from from uh, from podcast to radio stuff to coaching, what's what's going on next for you? Well, we just um we just wrapped a, a podcast. Me and Tyron did, you know, kind of talking about all this stuff. So, the morning um, you know, you get that firsthand from his mouth on what he thought of it on the Morning Wood Show. So you listen to that. But uh, tomorrow, I'm actually filming a short film with uh, with a, a guy of mine named uh, Steve Darren, who actually did a feature over uh, that just released over the summer. Cool. Uh, actually, if, actually a few months ago, the, the feature was called Shadow Fighter, but he actually wrote a short film that I'm filming with him tomorrow. Wow. Other than that, I'm still doing my improv stuff and and uh, and still coaching fighters and just trying to get stay in the groove and keep moving forward. Dean Thomas, the man with 26 hours in a day, <laughs> get all that time. <laughs> And I don't sleep. I don't sleep, man. I get. I, I stay working. <laughs> well, Coach, thank you so much uh, for your time. Everyone, make sure you're following Dean Thomas, all his projects. Make sure you're listening to The Morning Wood. Hear it directly from the man himself. We're really glad that you took some time with us again. It, it was an honor to have you on. Thanks, Coach. Thank you, fellas. I appreciate it. Take care. Wonderful, insightful things. And, and, and as we're wrapping that up, um, I also wanted to make – a point that he also he's done a lot you know a couple appearances this week at least this is the second one that i've known i guess third if you count uh the podcast he does with tyron woodley um and and he also said a lot of really smart things in uh the slip and dip podcast with Mm -hmm. matt wells who's written for flow combat and fan sadie yeah so make sure to check that out Uh, yeah i read that this morning it was a good good piece on uh and a a good interview absolutely yeah so uh and it we really appreciate him taking the time out to talk to us. Yeah, he's a great guest. He's got he, he's super funny. He's so super, many things on his schedule. Yeah, he's can't so believe he honest. Fit us in. Yeah, and he's you know he's he, you wouldn't know it by you know his accessibility and his and his how down to earth he is. But him and Mike Brown are possibly like the two most uh, active high level coaches in the world for MMA. He's always coaching the best of the best, like any given week to week. He's if that were his only job coaching. He'd be uh, him and Mike Brown would be the busiest and I think you know the most successful in, in the world. But then he adds on twenty other jobs, two other broadcasting jobs, acting, all right. this stuff, the comedy, the improv. So yeah, pretty cool. I know he's got a family too, so he's he's a busy dude. Uh, but yeah, you definitely got to follow him. if you if and, and also do yourself a favor if you just know Dean Thomas through his coaching, through his podcast, through his entertainment, go back and watch his fights. Um, he's a young man. Not too long ago was he fighting. He was perennially. Uh, one of the top lightweights in the world, top five lightweights in the world for about a good decade. Yeah, if you haven't, if you're a newer fan of the sport, go back, check, uh, go on Fight Pass, whatever. Go on uh, 
other things and and, and check out his fights. He's a great fighter, uh, really smart dude. Yeah, it's funny. He was saying they use, that's true. They used to always describe him as as he's walking in the ring, the graphics, explosive, this and that. It's like, yeah, he's a good athlete. But more than anything, he was always a technician and a really smart game planner as well. So, yeah, it's kind of funny to hear him talk about that. But you'll see a real cool old uh, sophisticated level technician um, as a fighter back even in days when not everyone really uh, had that level of sophistication. And uh, Tyron Woodley's was one of the things we wanted to talk about was Tyron Woodley asking for an apology from Dana White publicly. Yeah. It seems like, uh, based on reports, maybe this he explains upon this. I, I just saw the headline. I didn't get to read it, but maybe this uh, happened on the podcast between Dean and uh, Tyron this morning. But he, uh, I guess Woodley said that he's talked to Dana and that they've kind of the, the, Dana said the that Woodley and him would talk. I don't know if Woodley right. did. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I saw the clip that Dana said that they had talked, and uh, Tyron Woodley said that he said the same thing. He said oh. the same thing, and you know said that they were uh, able to end the conversation amicably. You know, part of this, too, is it's like fight night, and everybody wants to, uh, you know, everybody's, there's a lot of adrenaline going from all sides. Um, so, you know, Dana White probably said a lot of things that he didn't, he wishes he would have been a little bit more maybe taste tactful and sane. I mean, maybe. Perhaps. I don't know that Dana White's ever These shown that type of guessing. remorse about calling people right. names and stuff. He's never public, publicly apologized for it. He hasn't stopped his behavior. And I really do believe it's it's intentional. I don't know. Everything's heat of the moment for Dana White, it seems. I think it's, there's a pattern of going after people when they talk about fighter treatment, when they talk about topics he doesn't want them to talk about. So maybe it was just in the heat of the moment. Uh, I don't know. I've seen him defend a lot of bad performances if it's people that didn't make waves. That's my take. It's a fair take. Yeah, yeah. But there's no doubt he it was the heat of the moment. He doesn't make fights on a fight night, but, <laughs> but he well, does. Least, but Bisping's <laughs> fighting George St. Pierre. Yeah, that's right. That's so, right. Or they went back in, at, backstage after Shogun. Uh, won his first fight and, and uh, gave, offered him the title fight. Like, they do all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, it's interesting. But I'm glad they talked. It would be nice if if uh, if the behavior of throwing fighters under the bus would just stop because they already don't get paid very well. They already don't have benefits. And now we're going to disparage them with their words. That's a tough pill for, for me to swallow, at least. Yeah, definitely. Um, anyways, moving on. We got, like, some rapid-fire things we wanted to talk about before. Uh, we wrap up. Jones says his title reign will be, uh, the second title reign will be, you know, mm. better. Uh, the fans deserve, I believe is the word, the phrase he used, what the fans deserve yeah. at uh, the post-fight press conference uh, on Saturday night. Do you think we'll see a different John Jones going forward? I mean, I hope so. I don't know the man. Only thing I know is he, whatever decisions he's he's made, the mix of them, good and bad, have led to him losing millions of dollars at, at times to, to having to uh, give up years of his, of his prime. I hope that changes for sure. You know, I don't know him. I don't know what he needs to change as a human being. We all need to change some stuff, what he needs to work on. But I, I, I hope so. I think uh, I worry about some things. This is not my field of expertise if I even have one, Mike. But I worry about the way he's talked about addiction. He, always, he talks about – he admits to being addicted to some things but not other things that he's – Let's just say he's known to use, um, and he and he insists that some things are just one-time usages and stuff like that. But then also, he always talk he, the things he talks about is saying I was an, an addict. He t- always talks about it in the past tense. Always, he doesn't. He doesn't. The little I know is that there's a constant. The 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 real language is that there's a constant daily, you know, battle with whatever it is, uh, and it's it's a lifelong thing. And that words talking about addiction as a pa- addiction as a past tense thing, and his like PR uh, this is. Uh, you know, brief hour, a long stint in rehab, make me worry that I don't know if he does, if he has, 
if he has learned lessons that'll help him do what he needs to do. This is an interesting conversation and we could make a whole show about this because obviously I have a lot of opinions on this and ever since Jones was always intriguing from the greatest of all time, talented fighter kind of perspective, but his whole, ever since that drug test at UFC 182, it's been like, I viewed him through a different lens because we have that shared struggle and I you know, and I really want to believe him because I think it's a good thing. And like, I didn't, I didn't think Daniel Cormier using it as a weapon was a good thing. Not at all. Um, it's not a good thing for somebody who's in sobriety, but it's just not a, a good thing in general. Up, the yeah. stigma, you know, that go, goes with it. There, there's Mitch Hedberg has a famous disease or a famous joke where he says, uh, alcoholism is the only disease you can get yelled at for having. It's like, damn it, Otto, you have lupus. Damn it, Otto, you're an alcoholic. One of those just doesn't sound right. You know, and it kind of goes that thing, and that's probably also what played a big part in Daniel Cormier becoming the heel in this fight, so to speak. Um, But, you know, and I want to believe him, and I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, and everybody does sobriety different. I don't do sobriety the way that an AA stalwart would tell you to. I I went to AA, made my own... um, Learned to do it my way. I kind of modified it. Sure. There's a good Wall Street Journal article about okay. that similar kind of this author writer was like he kind of rewrote the 12 steps for him uh, to, to face him. Uh, you know, and I agreed a lot with what he kind of did was similar to what I did. Anyways, but there's other things. There's things that if you are somebody who's in recovery, you can't fake it. You, can, I mean, you, There's a big thing called fake it till you make it. Just do it until it starts working and that people use in rehab and AA. But you can't fake it if you know what I mean mm. and, and what I mean is like say like oh I'm in recovery and I'm going to a there's there's verbiage there's phrases there's things that like tip you off mm. and then he'll like touch on a couple things I'm like well that's kind of a phrase but like is that common enough mm. and I don't know yeah yeah that's a that's an episode for another day we well, could yeah no that. it's an interesting discussion and and it's and and we hope we we hope that he does well. Like I don't. What do I, I want him to not do well in life? Right. You know. Yeah. But yeah, I, I wonder. So I'm not. I'm not. I didn't mean it. No. No. I'm not saying you. So I'm glad you brought up what you brought up. I don't mean like. Oh, oh no. I, I think this guy's a loser. No, I don't think he's a loser. I think no, no, he no. struggles, and I worry if he's right being honest about some stuff. Yeah, well, I, I think we're on the same page. Uh, um, because you know, like I watch it, and I'm you, you know, like I could see it. Through see somebody like if I was. Eyes. If I if I was sponsoring somebody and somebody was telling me like they were going to this or that and meeting and whatnot, like I would be able to tell if they were lying mm-hmm. to me because there's just things that like you wouldn't you I you know things little things that people in the program know that mm-hmm. would get it's there's like a secret language almost mm-hmm. if you will yeah. um you know it'd just be like going into walking into a jujitsu gym and not knowing anything about it and, and talking being like, like yeah, and trying yeah. to act like, you know what you're talking about. People right. would be like, what do you mean? You don't know what a Kimura or the yeah. difference between a Kimura and an Anaconda or Americana or whatever yeah. is like, what do you, what do you mean? You know, like, okay, you, you're full of it. Like, all right, guy. Oh, you're a black belt wear. Get out. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's kind of like that thing, yeah. I guess you would, what you were going to say. And it's so like, I watched it and I'm kind of like, I don't know, mm-hmm. you know? And then of course you have people that know him well, who go out and say, things that kind of raise eyebrows sure about yeah see it's that type of stuff i think we're talking about the same stuff and i don't have the educated eyes uh or the experience to even you know to claim any type of authority but that's i think we're talking about the same type of stuff you know so i i I hope he i hope we're wrong or that he changes it because he's he's you know listen whatever he is i don't know what he is but he has a family and he has talent and he's worked hard uh, and I hope he does well as a human being, you know, he, I've gotten a lot of hours of enjoyment watching him do what he does. So I certainly hope, you know, he gets a lot out of that life as well. And he said, um, 
you know, he said he was going to be respectful after the fight. And he was, he was, he was respectful in the cage. He was respectful at the post fight press conference. Uh, I think he was, you know, he lived up to that. And I, I, at the end of the UFC 182 fight night, I kind of, I wrote this for my column that goes up tomorrow on sports illustrated, but, um, at the end of 182, it was the suck it sign. Yeah, and I, right. I hope he's crying somewhere, yeah. you know, and he was wearing the shirt that said unbroken, which is like a jab at something that Cormier said. And then after this fight, he sung his praises. He went over and made an effort to console him though. Cormier wasn't necessarily in a position to, he wasn't having it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, and, and it wasn't all for show. Like it, it seems like at least yet. I mean, we're only a few days removed, but it's, he's like, he's, stayed steady with that so seem more real than many other things he used to say that always made him sound fake so yeah i hope so right um, yeah so um we'll see it'll be interesting to watch um, how watch how it develops and you know his next fight and how everything progresses and whatnot so only time will tell yeah if this is a different john jones than the john jones we're used to but either way huge draw it's good to have him back, uh, and it'll be interesting to see kind of what all mm. unfolds. Um, there's so much more to talk about. We haven't even talked about <laughs> Robert, Robbie Lawler and Donald Cerrone. That's true. Any quick thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I, uh, great fight. I was a little surprised by the, the scoring uh, for sure. I'm, I'm even more surprised that they're going to – sounds like they want to push him back into a, a title fight immediately after that as well. Not that he doesn't deserve it. Fine. You know, that, that's okay. Do it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, um, I saw, I thought, I thought it was closer than the judges seemed to think. Um, uh, I thought, I thought Cerrone, uh, fought, fought really well and I thought he closed the fight pretty well. It's, it's disappointing for Cerrone, you I know, bet. like, I mean, even from like a fan's perspective, like this is a guy that fans love and he's gotten what the one UFC title shot right, right. and it didn't go his way. It ended quickly. You know, he, he's, it's like a Michael Bisping story mm. almost, you know, like he got so close so many times uh, he, he won this fight. Like he would have been maybe in the mix because the welterweight division definitely was to an area has yeah, been kind of cleaned out. It's amazing guys. He's a lightweight and he just, you know, arguably beat Robbie Lawler. Who's immediate past uh welterweight champion. You know, he was that's four, four and one in the division coming into this fight being great people being like Matt Brown who barely lost to Robbie Lawler when they fought you know like yeah he, he's it's he's an incredible lost career. to a Jorge Masvidal who right um had a tough fight with Damian Maya yeah. UFC 211 yeah some people so, thought Jorge beat Maya yeah so like yeah he's he's elite at two divisions that's pretty pretty remarkable so uh, you know it'll be interesting to see what he does you know yeah. the there was reports uh, over the weekend that there was California was going to do the weight classes. I believe is what the report was. Oh, I don't really? know if you saw this. Um, um, I might be ABC. I might be butchering this because there were so many headlines over the course of the weekend. But uh, there was a headline I think that they said they were going to do the 165, 175 mm-hmm. weight classes, and you know maybe that would have some impact on everything. I think I saw a quote that the UFC didn't care. Yeah, the UFC announces we Anyways, won't go to California. <laughs> that 165 division would be the home, like the, just the perfect yeah, home for him. So, right. He's like a man with no no land. Yeah, no, and those, uh, those weight classes are a good idea. To have 15 and 20 pounds separate most weight classes is insane. I'm not saying we need to do it every three pounds, but 10 pounds is fine. Should be something every ten pounds. So I like to know the ABC. Plus the symmetry of it all is just too much. It's too great. Yeah. No. No. I mean. Yeah. I mean. I. I think it's like. I don't know. I think it's crazy to have like. Oh, you're a one eighty fiver or you're a two o fiver. That's a big range. Or you're a two o fiver or you're two sixty five. What? No, that can't be right. Like we need more weight classes. Uh, ABC weight class adoptions. Uh, that seems good. But you know the. 
Because the UFC is not regulated by any outside uh, bodies, there's no reason they have to accept those. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there overall. Well, that wraps up UFC 214 talk. Wraps up the show this weekend. Sergio Perez fights Brandon Moreno. That'll be an entertaining fight. Oh, yeah. Mexico City yeah. fight, right? Yep. Was it in Mexico City? Mexico City. Alan Brandon Moreno is a Mexican fighter. Uh, Alan Jabon is on that card. Friend of the show. That's cool. Um, Random Marcus fights. Oh, yeah. Um, Finding uh, the, Grasso. the Mexican. Yeah. yeah. Alex Grasso. Yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's an fight. interesting fight. You know, Rashad Evans is on that card yeah. fighting Shh. Smiling Sam Alvey. Alvey. That's a good fight. This is a big yeah, opportunity so, for Smiling Sam. Yeah, it's uh, it'll be interesting. So, quick, quick prediction. Uh, I'll go with, I'll go with uh, Sam Alvey. The upset. I don't know what the odds are. These are like upsets in my mind or not. Uh, I'll go with Randa Marcos, and uh, Pettis has looked really, really good. It's a really good fight. You can go either way. I'll pick Pettis. You're going to pick Pettis? Yeah. It's, it's kind of a matchup of uh, experience versus momentum. Sure. Yeah. You know? No, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, Pettis was going to have a huge fight against Henry Cejudo mm-hmm. before that fight got called off. Yeah. That that might have gotten in the title shot. He might be fighting for the title if right now. Had that fight. Him, sure. If he had yeah. beaten him, Hell and yeah. that fight didn't get called off. Yeah. yeah. The caveat of if he had beaten him <laughs> yeah, is, right. is an important one. Only one person but, done it. Yeah. Right. Uh, but, you know, it's it's going to be a good card. Striker, grappler, Moreno's better on the ground. Pettis is, you know, the striker, Duke Roof has called him the most talented striker he has, which Says is a lot. Yeah, you know, he's working with people like Paul Felder, yeah. um, you know, Anthony Pettis. Right. So it's an interesting matchup. I, I think I want to go with Brandon. Yeah. Or, I mean, not Brandon, Sergio Pettis. Oh, but you just let down all the Moreno fans with that half second. But somebody, <laughs> but I was talking to some people about Brandon so Moreno, he, and they kind of had, they kind of like, I was very confident, and they kind of had me torn. Uh, so he's on the mind. Yeah, that's right, why. Right, right, right. Um. Anyways, it'll be it'll be a good card. It'll be interesting yep. to watch. I, I, I agree with Brandon Marcos. Yep. You know, wrestler Felice Herrig. Uh, Fought Grasso. I hope I'm getting this right. Yeah, I think, in the I last think fight, that's right, yeah. and she was able to take her I'm down and whatnot. Yeah. So, and Marcus is a better grappler. So that yeah, seems like good. Um, Rashad Evans, good fight, but man, he's three and zero and three in his last three fights, and well, two and five in his last seven. It's tough, man. He had a traumatic series of injuries. He got older. He's a he's an all time great, but yeah, it's tough. It's Super tough nice to guy too. It. That's what I hear. You know, he gives out full size candy bars at Halloween. Oh, that anybody who does every, that, that is like. Uh, a plus person, <laughs> yeah. human being. That's right. That's that pretty much says it all. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I promise I didn't go to his house. Did you trick or treat? I was gonna say you trick or treated nah. there, didn't you? <laughs> no. He lives in Florida. That's too far away to trick or treat. <laughs> Though it would be a good place to spend Halloween. It would. It well, thank you, candy bars. Thank you, everyone, for watching. We really appreciate it. For those of you tuned in on the Sports Illustrated MMA Facebook page, we're here every Wednesday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, 12 out on the West Coast. And if you're listening to us later, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Blog Talk, Stitcher, TuneIn, and you can even catch clips up on YouTube. So we are everywhere. There's no excuse not to watch. Not that you guys would ever miss an episode. But thank you for tuning in, as always. We will see you next week.